0: Okay, this morning's subject is Martin Luther. And you can see a picture of Martin behind us. That's actually a painting done 500 years ago. We have several paintings of Luther, that's one of them. And um, he was an amazing man. If you look at that picture carefully, you'll notice that his face is kind of, and you'll see in all these medieval paintings, the face is kind of a brown, yellowish-brown color. And up around the eyes, you see things are dark. That's just dirt on his face because people never bathe. And, you know, if you're around somebody today that hasn't bathed in six months, their skin takes on kind of a yellowish color. And so you'll see in all these paintings of these people from the medieval period, that's what they look like. That's just a little side note that's not really all that important, but it kind of helps explain life 500 years ago, which is very different from life today. All right, so we're gonna, let's talk about why Luther is so important. He's a pivotal figure in world history. I mean, we're talking really pivotal. One of the most pivotal people in the last 500 years. Although if you went to school today and studied Western history, you might, Luther might just be touched upon as an anecdote or a small figure. But he's a fascinating personality. He's fascinating because he was so transparent. He wrote everything he thought about and everything he did, he wrote down, so we know lots about him personally. Whereas John Calvin, who was the Next Generation Reformer, who we'll talk about in a couple weeks, Calvin didn't say anything about himself, so we don't know that much about him personally, but we know tons about Luther. Therefore, Luther is one of the top ten most biographied persons in history. There's only been nine people in history with more biographies written about them than Martin Luther. Due to his importance and the interests involved in his uh, personality, Jan Hus, remember who we who we discussed uh, two weeks ago, prophesied Luther's coming as as the Pope and the Catholic authorities were getting ready to burn him at the stake in 1414 at the Council of Constant, Con, Excuse me, at the Council of Constance, Hus, whose name means gray goose prophesied this, quote, Now they will roast a goose, but in a hundred years' time they will hear a swan sing. They had better listen to him. Well, Luther published his 98 theses 103 years after us was burned at the stake. And so today, in most Lutheran churches, there'll be this, a picture of a swan somewhere in the church. Sometimes the swan is on the weather vane on top of the church. Sometimes it's built under one of the stained glass windows. But there's almost always a swan somewhere in the Lutheran church. Luther celebrated his Christian liberty. And uh, to the abhorrence of many fundamentalists, Luther enjoyed beer and wine as God's good gifts. I'm reading a quote here. He had a mug with three rings on it. The first, he said, represented the Ten Commandments, the second, the Apostles' Creed, and the third, the Lord's Prayer. Luther could drain the mug of wine through the Lord's Prayer, though a friend could not get beyond the Ten Commandments. But Luther is never recorded to have been drunk, okay? So the Reformers enjoyed their wine and their beer. Luther especially enjoyed beer. His wife brewed beer, which we'll come back to in a few moments. I want to show you a picture of, uh, this is a very important, very famous square in Worms, Germany. We'll talk about Worms in just a minute. It's spelled W-O-R-M-S, but pronounced as if it's a V, Worms. And this is where Luther took his stand in front of the imperial diet. But on the top, you see Luther at the top there, on the top of that little monument, at the base... Of that monument, you can see on the left Savonarola, on the right Huss, and on the back we have Peter Waldo, who we have not talked about, and Wycliffe. And then around the outside of the monument we have other people that were pivotal to the Reformation. So on the back we have, on the right we have Melanchthon, Magdeburg, Philip I, and then on the left Friedrich III, Augsburg, and Ruchlin, okay? So the important point is that those four men at the base of Luther's statue are saying these guys were foundational to what Luther taught and did, these four men at the base. Wycliffe, uh, Huss, Savonarola, and Peter Waldo. Peter Waldo lived in the 12th century. We haven't talked much about him because he was too far back in the past. So historical context. When he was nine, Columbus discovered the New World, When Luther was 15, Savonarola, whom we talked about last week, died. Have any of you uh, bought that book that I mentioned last week about Savonarola, A Crown of Fire? Nobody? Okay, well, it's a really good book. You should buy it. I'm rereading it. I read it 35 years ago. I'm I'm two-thirds of the way through it. It's really well written. It's... um, the author is named Van Passen. If you go to my blog, I'm going to blog on it this week, and you'll be able to. My blog is at williampfarley.com. Um, but you'll, I'll have a link to it. But it's really worth reading. You're going to learn a lot about reform, uh, medieval Catholicism. You'll learn a lot about Florence when Savonarola was preaching there. Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and Bonticelli And all, all these people were applying their craft in in uh, Florence. And I just read this week that when uh, Savonarola's sermons were put in writing, and at the end of his life, Michelangelo would, every night, would read one of Savonarola's sermons. He loved the preacher. He was a young man. He was 15, 16, 17, 18 years of age when Savonarola was at the height of his ministry there. Uh, When Luther was about 40, Magellan first circumnavigated the globe. So let's look at his biography. Luther was born in 1483 to Hans and Marguerite Luker. Luther, there's a painting of his parents. Now again, notice the yellow faces. The kind of dirty looking yellow faces. The father on the left was a miner. He didn't actually work in the mines, he was upper middle class. He, he either, we don't know whether he owned the mine or he managed the mine for the owner, but he was a man, uh, he was not a peasant. He was a man of, of higher wealth than that. So, uh, and his wife on the right there, Mar- Marguerite. In 1501 and 1505, between Luther's age 18 and 23, he got his bachelor's degree and his master's degree at the University of Erfurt. The degrees were in law. Now Luther was a smart guy. He had a high IQ, we know that because of all the education that he had. Now imagine this in a day when maybe five to 10% of the people can read. And you've got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. Luther lived under a really unhealthy fear of God before his conversion. And he had a really scrupulous conscience. In 1505, after he finished his master's degree, he's traveling home to visit his parents. He got in the middle of a really big thunderstorm, and he was terrified. He, sh- he shrunk up against a, the base of a big oak tree and sh- uh, sat there in fear and trembling, terrified. And he made this prayer. He prayed to the patron saint of miners, St. Anne, and he said, Help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk." The date was July 2, 1505. Well, he survived the thunderstorm, and because his conscience was so scrupulous, even though he, now he had a master's degree in law and his father wanted to have him finish and get a doctorate in law, he immediately went and joined the uh, August, uh, an order of uh, medieval monks called the Augustinian Hermits, and his father was furious. Exactly two weeks later, Luther threw a party for his classmates giving them his law books and his master's cap, and withdrawing from his doctoral studies. Then he told them that on the following day he would enter the monastery, and he did. He went down to the monastery, he was tonsured, which means they pulled all the hair out. You know, you have the funny little, with the little ring of hair around the head, and he became a monk. His spiritual advisor was a man named Stapitz, Father Stapitz, who was a really kind man, and a gracious man, and uh, uh, a man who really enjoyed the love of God. He couldn't understand Luther because Luther had this tremendous anxiety about God. To Luther, God was this judge in heaven. Christ was this judge. And of course, Christ will be our judge someday. But to Luther, there was no mercy or grace in Christ. He was just this judge of which. Luther was terrified, actually. And Luther knew that this judge was holy, and Luther knew he wasn't holy. This was God's gift to Luther, as we'll find out later. And so, he's, he, he, he feels like he can never do enough. He's sure he's not going to ever go to heaven because he has this scrupulous conscience. So, he would go to confession to Father Stopitz and then he would come out. He would spend 20 minutes confessing every sin he could think of, even the most minor th- sins. He would confess thoughts that he'd had that were um, thoughts of unbelief, and whatever it was, he drove Stoppitz crazy. So, he leaves the confessional. 20 minutes later, he's back, Father Stoppitz, I forgot about another sin that I had. This is what Luther was like as a young man. He's in his mid-20s now. And so, Stoppitz is thinking to himself, I've got to help this guy. He's got a problem. Stoppitz, understood something of the grace of God, Luther did not at all. So Stopitz, looking to cure Luther's scruples, ordered him to study theology and sent him to the University of Wittenberg. Now he knows that Luther's really smart because Luther has a master's degree. And most of the monks can barely read and write. So he just says, I'm gonna put this guy's smarts to work. I'm gonna have him study theology and maybe while he's studying theology, We can, first of all, use his intelligence, but secondly, maybe he'll come to peace with God. So he goes to the University of Wittenberg, which is a brand new university put together by Frederick the Wise, who was one of the seven emperors of the Holy Roman Empire, excuse me, seven electors of the Holy Roman Empire. Now an elector is somebody who is, when the Holy Roman Emperor is chosen in the medieval world, there are these seven men that would vote to choose the Holy Roman Emperor. And so Frederick the Wise is one of these men. Luther, in fact, event, should have been burned at the stake because of the Reformation, but he wasn't because Frederick protected him. So in 1509, Luther got his bachelor's degree in Bible. In 1510, stop it still worried about Luther's scruples, sends him to Rome to, on an errand. It was a, like a two-month journey, and he walked to Rome from Germany. But while Luther was in Rome, he saw the corruption that was rampant in the Catholic Church in Rome, and he came back troubled by it. Um, After Rome, Luther met up with Stoppitz in the garden at the Wittenberg Cloister. Stoppitz did not understand why Luther could not comprehend God's love for him. And there's this famous exchange. Love God, Luther retorted. I don't love God, I hate him. This is where Luther's at. He hates God because He feels that God has set these impossible standards for him that he can never measure up to and that God's going to judge him. Well, the standards are impossible. Luther understood that rightly. The standards were way over Luther's head. Luther got that. He also got and understood the holiness of God. But what he didn't get in any way, shape, or form was the gospel. This was a very important process for Luther to go through because he was going to need to have gone through this, when he understands the gospel, it's just, you know, it's like, it's amazing, the effect it has on him. In 1512, three years later, or two years after his trip to Rome, Luther received his PhD in theology and joined the faculty at the University of Wittenberg. In 1513 through 17, the next four years, as the Reformation is getting ready to break out, he preaches or lectures the monks On Psalms, Galatians, Galatians is very important because in Galatians, Luther begins to understand the gospel. Hebrews and Romans over that four-year period. During this time, we don't exactly know when, and there have been thousands of pages written on trying to decide when it was that Luther understood the gospel. Sometime between his coming back from Roman telling, stop I hate God, and 1517 when the Reformation broke out, he comes to understand the gospel. And here's how he describes it in his preface to his commentary on the Psalms. Quote, here I felt, yeah, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire Scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the Scripture from memory, and I extolled, my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word, the righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul was for me, truly the gate to paradise. Now, Luther's studying Romans and the gospel in Romans chapter one verse 15 and 16 is, tells us that I am not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. For in it, meaning the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith through faith. Okay, so Luther thought that by the righteousness of God, God meant God's righteous demands of us. The righteousness of God is the judge because the word righteous in the Greek, the original Greek can be translated either justice or righteousness. So Luther thought it it referred to the righteousness of God was God's going to require me to be righteous and I can't measure up. But then as he was studying Romans and he studied Galatians, the light broke through and Luther saw, ah, no, this righteousness is not something God requires of me. This righteousness is God's gift to me. God's going to give me righteousness, the gift of righteousness, so that I will, on the day of final judgment, be declared righteous even though I'm not. And can you imagine the joy for a man like Luther who's struggling under these scruples and this anxiety and this fear of God. First of all, he says, oh my goodness, God is love. And secondly, oh my goodness, the freedom that I have now, the incredible freedom that I have to just live my life with joy and not worry, I don't need to be perfect, I don't need to measure up, I am free. And this was the beginning of the Reformation, although it didn't spill over right away, Uh, I mean, Luther understood this. He kind of assumed at this point that lots of other Roman Catholic thinkers understood this too. Some did, but not very many. Now, during this period, in 1516, when Luther was 34, a brother named Brother Tetzel came to a neighboring town selling indulgences to raise money to build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And you know the famous slogan that Tetzel used was, when into the coffer a coin rings, a soul from purgatory springs, okay? The idea is this, the Catholics still believe in indulgences today, they haven't changed this at all. But the indulgence is the idea that if I I can give, Catholics believe that everybody that's not a saint, a saint would be somebody who's earned their way into heaven Their first fallacy is that you can earn your way into heaven, but the the saints are those who have earned their way into heaven, and they've shown that they're saints because after they died, miracles have been done in their name. Therefore, we know they earned their way into heaven, and therefore, their merits, which are more than they needed to get saved, have been put into a treasury of merit, and so you can buy some of those merits from the treasury of merit and put money into the coffer. You can buy some of those treasures and get your... Loved ones that died that are suffering in purgatory, they can get into heaven based on that treasure of merit. Brothers and sisters, this is so abhorrent, there aren't words for it compared to what's in Scripture. But this is where we go in the flesh when we're not connected to the Bible. It's always, I need to work it. I need to work my way in. I need to be good enough. I need to do enough. I just need to do a little bit more. That is fundamental to human nature grace and enjoying the freedom of the gospel is not fundamental to the human nature. And that's why we need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. So, word comes to Luther through his parishioners that this is going on in this neighboring town. And so, Luther decides to publish ninety-eight theses. Ninety-five theses, I'm sorry, to be any did what was common in that day. He takes his 95 theses written out in Latin, and he takes a nail and he nails them to the local Wittenberg church door. It, like it was like a notice, I want to have a debate on these subjects. And if you've ever read the 95 theses, you can tell right away that Luther's not clear on a whole lots of issues at this point in time. But he does understand grace, and he understands the grace of the gospel, and he's saying basically this whole indulgence thing is crazy. This flies in the face of the free grace of God that comes to us through the gospel. Luther just intended to have a debate. He did not want to start a reformation. He did not want to start a new denomination. He's a loyal Catholic monk at this point in time. So, he nails his theses. but the reaction to it was immediate and totally unexpected. The theses were taken, and they were... Remember, the printing press is up and running now. His theses were taken down. They were reprinted, and they were disseminated and spread all over Europe. And within 12 months, there's a huge furor going on throughout Europe over this. The reaction forced Luther, Luther to defend his understanding of grace and take its ultimate implications, the destruction of the entire Roman Catholic edifice of works, righteousness, and destroy it. So, in the medieval period, you had to have the church to get to heaven. Because the church gave you the righteousness that would enable you to stand on the day of final judgment. What was it? Well, I had all these works I have to do. I have to go to Mass every Sunday. I grew up Roman Catholic and was told that if I, didn't, if I missed Mass deliberately, then I would go to hell unless I went to confession. If I died before I went to confession, I'd go to hell because I had missed Mass. Or I'd eaten meat on Friday. Or I'd kissed a girl improperly. Or the list went on and on and on. And so I needed to have, not, not only did I need to go to math, Mass and take communion, which Catholics believe is actually the literal body and blood of Christ. But I need to have confession. If I didn't have a priest to confess it to, my sins would never be forgiven. And if I didn't have the church to marry me, I would never have a valid marriage. And if I didn't have the church to come and do the last rites over me before I died, I wouldn't go to heaven. I had to have the church to be saved. But the Reformation was, you don't need the church to be saved. The priesthood of all believers, I have direct access to God through faith. I don't need the church. Now, it took a little while for Luther to connect all these dots together. Between 1517, though, and 1518, a year later, he's made the connection. And he's, now he's really radical because now he's teaching to the medieval world that the Catholic Church, which runs and controls everything, you don't need the Catholic Church to get into heaven, to have a relationship with God. Should you go to church? Yes. He doesn't mean we don't need the church, but we don't need the church to help us work out works righteousness. Here's a picture of the Wittenberg Church door as it is today. It's a metal door today, and into that metal door are inscribed the 95 Theses. When Luther was alive, that door was wood, and of uh, The theses were nailed to the door, but in the intervening years a fire occurred and the wood door burned up, so they replaced it with a metal door, but they had the theses engraved into the door. So in 1518, a year after Luther publishes his 95 Theses, his order of monks, the Augustinian herbits, asked him to go to Heidelberg. Germany, to conduct a disputation with the other monks in his order. In other words, he's going to go and he's going to defend his, this new theology. So he goes, and he publishes for the monks 28 theses, which sum up his thinking. But by this time, his thinking has evolved quite a bit from the 95 theses. In the Heidelberg dispensations for disputations, for the first time, Luther argued what he called the theology of the cross and he compared it to what the church, what he called that was being taught normally the theology of glory. Now, he's not speaking of God's glory. He meant the theology of glory, referring to the glory of man. The the definition contains of the, a definition of the theology of glory contains four propositions. Number one, God's standards aren't that high. Remember Luther's striving To get in. He thinks if he could just do a little bit more, he can merit God's favor. But Luther realizes when he comes to grips with what's in Scripture, no one can merit God's favor. His is completely beyond us. But the theology of glory thinks we can merit God's favor. Two, man is basically good. Yes, he commits sins. He's imperfect, but he's fundamentally good. Sin is not his problem. And this comes from Thomas Aquinas who lived two or three centuries prior to Luther who said that man is fallen but his reason is not fallen. His mind is not fallen. There's a long reason why Aquinas thought that. Number three, we can find God therefore through human effort, through philosophy or reason. And we can also earn God's favor. Number four, last proposition is, it's all about human self-actualization. I am going to feel good about myself because I've done enough good. I've pleased God by being a good person. I am certainly better than other people. I fast and I pray and I go to church every Sunday and I go to confession every week. I am a good person, not like these other people over here. See, I'm speaking as Jesus spoke about the Pharisees, which is, that's the theology of glory. That's how we think when we think we can earn it. By contrast, Luther's theology of the cross is about human bankruptcy and God's glory, not human glory, God's glory. Number one, God's standards are perfection. We can't meet those standards. Number two, we're not just sinners. We don't just do occasional sins. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins, and we'll talk about this more later. And number three, we can't find God through human effort. God must find us. I can't find God through philosophy. I can't find God through human reason. In other words, I can't think my way to God because my reason has fallen. My reason doesn't like the God of the Bible. And number four, this whole system of salvation is set up to bring glory, praise, and honor to God that no man might boast. Under the real gospel, I'm never gonna look down on somebody else because they haven't measured up. Rather, I'm going to look to God and say, God, thank you for saving me, a sinner. I'd be just like everyone else if you hadn't shown me grace and mercy. And I don't deserve that grace and mercy. It's just grace, mercy, and kindness that you've shown to me. With that in mind, we don't look down on anyone. Everyone comes to Christianity, comes to God, and the ground at the foot of the cross is level, okay? Luther's theology of the cross emphasized also the hiddenness of God. God reveals himself and God hides himself. No one can know God unless God unveils himself. You cannot be a Christian unless God initiates a relationship with you and begins to unveil himself to you. And he does that by giving us faith. Where does God unveil himself, Luther asked. Well, according to Luther, God unveils himself at the cross. Cross-centered Christianity, cross-centered thinking has its, has, its fundamental, has its fundamental roots in Martin Luther and the Reformation. This was also Paul's understanding. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Roland Baton Luther's biographer has this famous quote, which you've probably heard before. He's summing up Luther's thinking about God hiding himself. God hides his power in weakness. He's thinking about the cross now. God hides his wisdom in the folly of the cross. God hides his goodness in the severity of the cross. God hides his justice in the in sins. In other words, what we, what, what we learn about sin at the cross, and God hides His mercy in His wrath being revealed at the cross. Luther's saying that God hides Himself, God unveils Himself. Where has He unveiled Himself? At the cross of Christ. Here's how church historian Stephen Nichols sums up Luther's theology of the cross. In light of Christ on the cross, any trust in human ability becomes sheer folly any attempt to reach God through philosophical speculation also becomes futile. As Luther reflected in 1 Corinthians notes, through the foolishness of the cross, God destroys the wisdom of the wise. By contrast, Nichols goes on, the theology of glory celebrates works and what hum- humanity can do. The theology of the cross celebrates Christ. And what Christ has accomplished. Say that with me. The theology of the cross celebrates Christ and what Christ has accomplished. Say it again. The theology of the cross celebrates Christ and what Christ has accomplished. It's all about what God has done for me, not what I'm doing for God. See, the tables are turned upside down. Well, naturally, Luther's theology of the cross led to persecution, and that led him to the Diet of Worms. I think we'll close here this morning, but let's talk about the Diet of Worms. July 1521, skip forward a couple of years. The Roman Catholic Church, meanwhile, was excommunicated to Luther because this is ab- anathema to them. Pope Leo X ordered Luther to come to Rome to stand trial, and Fr- Frederick the Wise, Luther's protector, simply refused to send him. Luther was a German citizen, and he would face his accuser's by Frederick's understanding only on German soil. Again, it was Frederick that kept Luther alive. Luther remembered what they'd done with Huss 100 years prior. They gave him, remember, they promised him safe conduct, coming and going, and they would listen to him. So they promised Luther safe conduct to Rome to come, in. Luther goes, nah, I don't think I wanna to go to Rome, I don't trust these guys, and Frederick protects him. Instead, the imperial diet of the Holy Roman Emperor was taking place at Worms on German soil that year. And Luther was offered safe passage to come and explain his new theology. This is R.C. Sproul now I'm quoting from. Luther arrived at Worms on April 16 to cheering crowds. The the peasants and the people loved Luther because this gospel was just amazing grace to them, as you can imagine. And uh, they loved Luther. On April 17, Luther appeared before the Diet. In front of Luther was a large table on which were spread out a collection of his writings. The presiding officials demanded only two things. First, Luther's confession that he was the author of these books, and then a recantate, recantation of their contents. So there's just Luther's was, was, had diary of the pen. I mean, he wrote and wrote and wrote. I wish I had time to go into this. But the table's stacked with books like this, and the prosecutor in front of Luther says, Are these all your books? Luther looks through him and says, yeah, these are mine. He said, these can't be all your books. You can't possibly have written all these books. Yeah, Luther said, I wrote all these books. Well, do you recant of the content of these books? And now Luther realizes he, they didn't call him here to have a debate about what his beliefs were. They've called him here to try him and accuse him and probably burn him at the stake as a, as a heretic. So Luther pleads with these guys, he says. He hesitated and asked for a day to consider his reply. The night of April 17, that night, was passed in prayer. As as with the vigils, he kept as a monk. Luther prayed through a struggle. But unlike those previous vigils, this one was not followed by crushing anxiety and throes of anfechtungen, which is a German word that means great anxiety, Luther instead emerged from his chamber and took the steps to his place before the Diet the next day in confidence, security, and peace that God was with him. The next day he stood before the Emperor Charles V and the human powers of Europe at the Diet of Worms, and this is what he said. Oh shoot, I've lost my, I'll have to read it to you. The password went out on my thing here and I've lost my, my screen. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures, or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience." May God help me, here I stand, amen." Well, that was it. That's a very famous statement, it was written down at the time by scribes, thank you very much. Here's a, here is, yeah, here's the, here's the copy of it up behind you, can you see it? Halfway down I've got it underlined, uh, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. That was a really big deal. Really, some people have said this was the start of the modern world, in the sense that conscience is going to reign supreme over the ruling authorities. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. If you want a really good book on Martin Luther, read Roland Baton's book, Here I Stand. It was published in the 1950s. It sold several million copies. Bain was a professor of, of church history at Yale. It's a great book. I've read it a couple times over the years. Now Luther is left alone, and he's leaving Worms in his little two-wheel cart pulled by a couple of donkeys. And he's expected he's expecting to be arrested and burned at the stake. He gets a few miles down the road, and he's in the middle of the woods in a forested area. And, and Frederick the Wise, his protector, has hired some guys to to swoop down in and, and grab him, capture him in his cart and imprison him, they, they blindfold him, they tie him up, they put him on a horse, they leave the cart in the middle of the road and they ride off through the forest. And Luther thinks he's being, being captured by the emperor and, and the end is near, but actually they're his friends and they take him to a castle in an area that, um, called the Wartburg, which is out in the middle of the forest and they hide him there for 300 days. Uh, Luther grows a long beard and takes an alias, Junker George, as his name. Nobody knows where Luther is. They think he's just disappeared, but he's being hidden in this castle. And during the 300 days that he's there, he translates the New Testament from Greek into into German. And he produces the first copy of the New Testament in the vernacular since Wycliffe. Well, I wish we had more time to spend on Luther, but it's 1050. He's an amazing man. He never was burnt at the stake. He dies at age 62 of old age, but he leads a very tumultuous life. There's a ton of books out there on Luther that are really good. I recommend Eric Metaxas has a new book called Martin Luther. Have you read Metaxas' book? A few of you have. It's very popular. The Roland Bainton book is a classic um, And I'm going to put a blog post out this week with a whole bunch of recommended reading on Luther and the Reformation for any of you that are interested. So if you want to find out more about that, go to my blog site. Let's close with prayer. If any of you have any questions, come see me. If you'd like a copy of my notes this morning, just email me at William, uh, excuse me, bfarley48 at gmail.com. bfarley48 is the year of my birth. bfarley48 at gmail.com and I'll send you a copy of my notes. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for Martin Luther. Thank you for working through him to produce the Reformation. Thank you for all the fruit that the Reformation has produced in the modern world. Thank you for his life, and God, I pray that you would give us the same understanding that Luther had, the same zeal for the Bible that Luther had, and the same courage to stand for truth that Luther had. Father, we ask all of this, in the name of your wonderful Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen, amen. Thank you.